0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Carrington as he shares this week's message. Turn to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. As you know, we've been going through almost a two-year study almost of Luke. We've got 61 messages in and almost finished chapter 9. So we've got some time to go through Luke, but we're going to take a, a summer break as we normally do. And so if you're here, you're going to be a great time as we're going to start a seven-week, eight-week study on the book of Joshua. We take the summer usually, or the usually the beginning of, of fall actually, and we always take an Old Testament book and look at uh, either a character or we take a book and look at the summary. We've worked our way from Genesis to Deuteronomy over the last five years. So here we are in Joshua as we look at Joshua at 30,000 feet. So, this is going to be an introductory message. It's a little bit different one that we usually have. It's going to be more about some historical things and overview, not so much things that just take off uh, and give you, though we're going to give you some of that as well. Here's a great word. Are you taking notes? By the way, if you ever like to take notes, we do have little message notes that, on the back table that you can always grab along with a pen. I want you to write this word in your Bible, on Joshua, or on your notes. It's one word. It's a word that everyone jo- enjoys, as Landon and, and Randy would make fun. It's one of my favorite, famous words. Rest. Rest. Now, if you're Michael, you might hear the word arrest, but that's not what we're talking about, Mike. We're just talking about rest. Okay, rest, R E S. I just, I have to always give Mike a little dig. Rest, R-E-S-T. What a great word. I enjoy that word. What a wonderful concept, the concept of rest. You've heard me joke many times that the days the, some of my best days are the days when I wake up tired, ready to go to work or whatever I got to do, and I think, wait a second, today I get to take a nap. That's why you see me joyful on Sundays, because Sunday is a day that I know that I get to take a nap. Anyone else have days like that? Hey, I get to take a nap today. It's a good day. Rest is a refreshing quiet or a sleep, a refreshing ease of an of an inactivity, of inactivity after exertion or labor. You know, we long for that. We yearn for days and times of rest. Especially in a day and age when so many things compete for our attention, our energy, and our time. Sometimes you feel like you're just in a rat race, that old phrase. And you're just being pulled in one direction and another, and you just want to unplug. Some of you probably say, No way, I can never do that. I can never totally unplug. But we want that rest. As we head into June, school is letting out, and our attentions are being drawn to an upcoming summer vacation. Anyone got, by the way, a summer vacation plan yet? Not yet? Wow. Well, so, there's, so you are going to be here every Sunday in June and July and August. That is wonderful to hear. Let me tell you, though, if you do take a summer vacation and you're not able to be here, make sure that you go to a church wherever you're at. You never get to take summer vacation from church. Church is that place of rest. So that's just an editorial, pastoral, editorial note. But it's good to see that you guys are going to be here all during the summer. We all look forward to a time to get away, to unplug and relax. Last week, we finished up the first half of Jesus' earthly ministry in Galilee as we've been going through Luke. It ended with two events that demonstrate the disciples were always striving for something. They were striving to be the best among their group, or they were striving to be better than any other group. They were always striving, and that striving led them for status, for success, and it, and it was fueled by pride that led them to consider others as outsiders and to consider themselves greatest or, or better than someone else, even among themselves as friends and followers of Jesus. And that, that pride led them to, to uh, neglect the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we talked last week about we're always striving for something. This, this world is always pushing us to strive for better grades, to, to complete another year, to get another degree, or get a better job, or be a better husband, or whatnot. It's always causing us to strive. And we get caught in that rat race, striving to achieve our dreams, our aspirations, and our desires. It's fueled by pride and causes us to neglect the very words of God. And to combat this this pride issue that you and I have, the, the Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts. And Jesus has announced that the kingdom of God has different values than that of the kingdom of man. Instead of pride, we are to live lives of humility, seeking to honor others while serving God. That's what we're called to do. And with this attitude, our striving is to be reoriented towards seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, rather than seeking our own kingdom and our own aspirations and dreams. So we're to quit striving for that type of status in our lives. So really, as we ended that part of Luke chapter 9 going up to verse 50, it's kind of apropos that now we're going to take a a look at the book of Joshua and we're looking at rest. Now, at first glance, as you look at Joshua, it has nothing about about rest. It's, it's 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 a book of action. We may acknowledge there, as we go on, we may acknowledge and accept God's commands, yet we understand that we're still conflicted within as our old flesh and our old habits still seek to dominate our thinking our will and our affections do we not we understand that even though we may be striving with the world we're still striving within ourselves the bible has called us to mortify or to put to death our sin-soaked passions and our desires that continually rise up their heads sanctification that process where we become more like Christ and freer from sin is like playing whack-a-mole. Our spiritual journey is long and difficult and energy, energy draining as we're whacking at those moles, that sin that continually pops up and attacks our spirit. It's no easy task to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow Christ. And if you are like me, you yearn for the day when the journey is finished that day when we we'll be delivered from the presence of sin that's my desire you know that's one of the things about salvation we understand that we've been delivered from the from the uh, the penalty of sin right god's wrath is removed we're, we're delivered from the power of sin satan no longer has any control we're no longer enslaved but yet we still live within the presence of sin in our lives we're affected by each and age. some of you might be feeling some aches and pains of that presence of sin today But one day, the Bible says that you and I will find rest. That we will no longer have to strive to be more like Christ, for we will be like him, made into the image of Christ. And I long for that day. I yearn for that day. I pray that you do. Uh, That's what the Bible says suffering is in this life. It's to prompt us to desire the things of God. Today, we begin our journey through the book of Joshua, and over the next seven to eight weeks, we're going to read of the faithfulness of Yahweh as Israel finally enters into the promised land that was promised to their forefathers 400 years prior. Now, as you hear me preach many times when I preach the Old Testament, I will use the personal name of God called Yahweh. That's I am. So, when you hear Yahweh, if you're not used to hearing that word, that means God. So, with that, I want to read Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It is here on the monitor. Again, I always encourage you to bring your Bible so you can take notes, uh, underline things. If you do not have a Bible, please let me know. We would like to give you a Bible as you leave here so that you can have one and you can treasure God's word. In Joshua 1, 1 through 3, we read, And after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead, Yahweh says. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time, and I pray that you give us wisdom, Lord, help us to understand your word. Lord, I thank you for the book of Joshua, a book that is, that is more ancient than the New Testament. But yet it is here, it is for us this morning. It's here for us as we study it. So help us to learn from it. Give us clarity of thought. And Lord, may we respond to your Holy Spirit's work as we consider rest and what it means and how you give us that rest. In your name we pray, amen. I need to take just a break real quick. Emily, can you hand me that water? I forgot to bring that up with me. Thank you. So here we go. First, I want to consider... Some observations here as we just read through as we just read through all of Joshua. So again, the title is Joshua at thirty thousand feet. So imagine an airplane. Many of you have been in one. You look out the window and you just you just see you don't really see distinct things. You just see uh, kind of things as a big overview. And that's what we're going to do. Is we're going to take a, a big look, uh, gulp look at uh, uh, at Joshua. So the first, there's some general facts about uh, the book of Joshua. It is the sixth book of the Old Testament. Is considered the first book of the former prophets in Jewish tradition, while you and I considered it a book of history. Joshua's setting is found in the land of Canaan. What you and I would think of now is Israel and Palestine and Jordan and that area. Uh, it is found in the land of Canaan 40 years after Exodus. It's after 40 years after Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt. So Exodus to, to, to Joshua is just 40 years. Several of the main characters are Joshua, Caleb, Rahab, Achan, and Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. It follows a simple outline in which chapters 1 through 12 is filled with adventures and actions as we see the military campaign against the people of Canaan. Chapters 13 and 21 uh, give us the allotment of the land and how which tribes get what land, while, ver- while chapters twenty two through 24 conclude with the covenant manners, uh, matters that detail how Israel is to live within the land among each other, serving, uh, uh, serving Yahweh and Him alone in the land. Secondly, the book of Joshua has many different commands and sayings and miraculous events that are both hard to read and understand, as well as adventurous, such as the total destruction of cities, including all the heavens, men, women, children, and even cattle. Even today, you and I, we read those stories, and they're very hard to understand. You and I would use the word genocide for what we're about to read in here. And for many people, this is a a negative. They have a hard time understanding the God of the Old Testament, and they reject him because he's a God of genocide. He's killing children. He's killing animals. He's killing everyone. But you and I, we're going to understand what we're reading here. Many will say that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. And God of the Old Testament, yes, he's angry, he's wrath. He's battle-hardened, but in the New Testament, he's love and peace. But what we're going to see is it's the same God, but different things are happening. So you and I are going to read and tackle that. What does that mean? What is God trying to teach us through there? Why does he command that? We see the killing of a whole family uh, for only one man's sin. His whole family winds up being killed for one man's sin. We see Rahab hiding the spies and then lying about it to protect them. And, and you and I would say, well, I would probably do that too. But others would come and say, well, wait a second, but Rahab was lying. But yet we see in our Hebrews chapter 11, which we read together as a church, that she is actually considered a woman of faith. So what about that? Is lying good or lying wrong? Or can you lie in some circumstances or what's going on? And wasn't Rahab... Running a you know a harlot house, she was she was a prostitute. What's going on there? We'll see the walking around the walls of a city for seven days in preparation for an attack, as we think of Jericho, or even the sun standing still for a whole day. How in the world does that happen? So we're going to see some different types of things that can be difficult and hard. Thirdly, Dr. Vernon McGee remarks that Joshua serves as a transition sort of, uh, a transition of sorts up to this point. Up to this point, Je- uh, Jehovah, Je- Yahweh has spoken by dreams and visions or by an angelic ministry. Now a new method is going to be introduced as we go through uh, Joshua. As the law of Moses is now the written voice of Yahweh, as we see in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. You see it here on the monitor. It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. He's speaking of Genesis through through Deuteronomy. But you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. They have a written copy of God's word that is given to them verbally and through the written word. There's also a transition as Moses hands over leadership to Joshua, who was a former slave. It's it's important to know he he was one of the original slaves of Exodus. He has served for the past 40 years as Moses' right-hand man, his companion, his helper, and the general of the army. This next generation of Israelites are now ready to enter into the promised land. They were sons and daughters of former freed slaves that now become the victorious owners of a land that Yahweh promises them in Joshua 24, 13. Here we read, it's again on the monitor, I gave you a land which you have not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. We see the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of Israel by giving these sons and daughters of the former freed slaves of Egypt, he gives gives them things that they did not deserve, things they did not build. Fourthly, land here, as we go through here, land, we're going to talk a lot about land. Land is central in Joshua, as Yahweh is faithful to his promise in Abraham. And we're going to see this in three different ways. First, we're going to see Joshua leads Israel in a holy war, where the emphasis is on Yahweh's initiation and participation. Yahweh is going to initiate the military campaign. He is going to fight for them, and he's going to participate in the battles. We also see it as Yahweh fulfills his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in providing the land he offered them so many years ago. And then thirdly, we see it as Israel is once again called to covenant love and loyalty with God as they live in the land. Uh, You have your Bibles hopefully still open to to Joshua chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Here we read Yahweh's promise. He says, every place that the sole of your feet will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Yahweh is saying, I am going to give you a land that I promised over four years years ago and as we journey through the book of Joshua we're going to learn the extent and the boundaries of that promised land how far does it go how wide is it how how long is it we also see that jo- Joshua conquers the land is now available for the Israelites to come and live in it we're going to read how each tribe is given an allotment but they still have to drive out the enemy We'll see that Israel does not possess all of the land as we we enter uh, the end of Joshua, but they have now entered it, but not yet possess it all. And there has to be a gradual occupation of the land by each tribe. Each tribe, even though God goes before them, participates, initiates, Israel must obey and do what God has called them to do. The New American Commentary sums up the book of Joshua this way. Since the five books of Joshua anticipate the fulfillment, excuse me, of God's promise to Abraham regarding the promised land. Now, through a string of military victories under Joshua, Israel conquers the land and divides it among the twelve tribes. And in these in these battles, it becomes evident that God is fighting for his people when they are strong and courageous. That's a, that's a, those are some key words there as you go through Joshua. And to put their full trust in him. Now you're seeing the theme that we started. We need to put our, our trust in a faithful God. At the close of the book, Joshua charges the people to remain faithful to God and to obey his commandments, and the people agree to do so. As for me and my house, says Joshua, we will serve the Lord. And though Joshua itself is anonymous, there is no, say, written by Joshua or I, Joshua, write this it appears to contain eyewitness testimonies, some of which may have been written by Joshua himself. So that's kind of just a big overlook as we look at Joshua. But what's going to be key is the land. And you and I need to understand the land, the promised land, if we're going to understand the books of Joshua, the book of Joshua, and as we continue on through the Old Testament. And so you and I, let's talk a little bit about the importance of the land. Now, again, I know I'm going to get a smirk here in a grimace when I talk about the story so far. Well, we're not at the story that you're thinking of, but the story so far of what we've had here is we've come into Genesis. We see that Abraham is promised some land, right? Isaac and Jacob, they never experienced that land. You might remember at the end of Genesis that Joseph, the son of Jacob, is then sold into slavery into Egypt where God prospers him and he becomes second in command uh, of, uh, just under the king all of all of Egypt. In that, a famine comes and he saves his people and wells the Egyptians and most of the world by providing food through wisdom. But then we see that then Exodus comes, that the people now 400 years later are crying out. They're suffering as slaves. They have become so large and they become so dangerous in the eyes of the Egyptians that the new pharaoh comes and makes them slaves and makes them workers of the field, tiller of the ground, builder of the pyramids. And so they begin to cry out for deliverance. They remember what they had been told from their youth, that God has promised them a land. But here they are in a foreign land and they say, where are you, God? Do you hear us? Do you not see our pain? And then we remember when we went back in Exodus several years ago and we saw that God saw them, God heard them, God responded to them. So God sends a deliverer, Moses, a Christ-like figure who delivers them through. And you remember the story of all the ten plagues and eventually Pharaoh lets them go. They go across the Red Sea where actually it departs They cross over into uh, what we now think of as Sinai. Pharaoh and his armies try to come in, but the waters of the Red Sea come back and drown them all. Then they go there and they go to Mount Sinai. Now we're in the book of Exodus working our way to Leviticus. And then we see that God gives them some commands. He gives them the Ten Commandments. But still, they fail. They fall. They sin. By forgetting God so quickly. Moses once again goes up to the mountain, and God gives them again the Ten Commandments and the law. He brings them down, and they make a covenant. And they say, I will be your God. And you will be my people. And they agree to this. And he says, thou shalt not, and thou shalt. Remember those, those things that we talked about. So God gives them all that they need to know how to come and worship him. But yet, as we see, as they get ready there, then to go into the promised land, that they send 12 spies. And ten of the spies come back and say that the people are too large for us. They will consume our children. We are like grasshoppers to them. They admit that the land is good, it's plenty, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. But there's no way that we can go in and conquer it other than two spies. Remember? Joshua and Caleb. They said, we can take the land. Yahweh will go before us. We can take them. Well, because of their sin and their failure to obey God, they were cursed to wander the desert for 40 years. That's where we come into numbers. For 40 years, they wandered that desert, never seen and in walking into the promised land until all of the original ones had died other than Caleb and Joshua. So here we come 40 years later, and the Jordan River is, is, is right on the other side. And so they're at the Jordan, and they're ready to cross over. And God says, now it's time to go across. Now, this promise of the land was both unconditional and conditional. The key word is possession. You may want to think of that. They were to possess land. That was unconditional. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis. Real quickly, first book of the, of the Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. I want you real quickly. We want to look at the land because it's so central to all of the of the biblical story. I love to hear those pages turn. Genesis chapter twelve. Yahweh is getting ready to speak to Abraham, and in chapter twelve, look at verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country, or go from your country and your kindred and your father's house." to a land that I will show you. Now, now listen to this. This is something else. He's telling Abram, he says, "I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave the land that you lived in that you know, and I want to take all that you have and I want to show you a different country. I'm going to take you to a different country that I'm going to give to you." Now that's a hard statement. I don't know if you ever packed up your whole family and left with just a promise of something. That's a difficult thing to do. But Abraham did so. Many of you might have done that yourself. But That's a difficult thing to do. It can be scary. There has to be a a trust that God is going to take care of you to do so. But look at verse 2. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you obey me and go to this land, you will receive these rewards. Now turn to Genesis 15, just a few pages over. Chapter 15, look at verse 7. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of Chaldeas. That was the land he was, to the, to give you this land to what? Possess. Possess. It will be yours. You will own it. This is a land that you do not own now, but I will give it to you. This is all that God is going to do. You do this, I will do that. And Then chapter 17, probably one, maybe one page over. Look at Genesis 17, look at verse 8. Again, God gives them a third promise. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting, want to finish that off for me? Possession. For an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So there is an unconditional possession given. I will give this land to you. But their possession was going to be conditional. Because now turn to the book of Deuteronomy, just a couple books over, fifth book in the Old Testament right before the book of, uh, of Joshua. And go to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Their possession is condens- is conditional. The gift was unconditional, but the continued possession of it was conditional. 29 verse 9. Therefore, Yahweh says, keep the words of this covenant, speaking of the law, and do them. Keep them, do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. And then go to uh, chapter 30, the next chapter. Look down at verse 17. There's that word, but. Pay attention when you see that. But if your heart turns away, And you will not hear, but are drawn to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. And listen to this. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob to give them. So the gift was, was unconditional. You don't have to do just go, and I will bless you. But to stay in the land was conditional. You must obey me, you must keep my words. It's important to know that the promised land is where Yahweh rules over his people. You may want to make that as a note. The, what's important to know is that the promised land is where Yahweh rules over his people. Now I want to go to the story of the Bible. You've heard me say it real quickly. The prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. And that starts in the book of Genesis where God gives them the land. And you want to guess the land that, that God gives Adam and Eve? What's it called? Garden of Eden. Eden. He created all the heavens and the earth, but he gives man this one little garden. And he says, in this garden is everything that you will need to prosper. I give you all that you have except for this one tree. All these other trees are wonderful and beautiful. Just do not eat of this one tree. God always puts a condition there. Obey. I've given you all of this. And and, and Adam, I'm going to give you the authority, the mandate to protect this garden, to rule over this garden. And he says, not only are you going to be confined to this garden, but he says, well, what we're going to do, and this is my paraphrase, is we're going to extend that garden. As you grow and you prosper, that garden will then grow over all the whole world as you and your children continue to obey me. That was God's plan, but... We know the story, right? Adam and Eve rebelled. They rejected that plan of God. And they were what? They were, they were um, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they were expelled. Um, I don't know if that's what you said, Mike, but they were expelled from the land where they were to rule under God's providence. Now, they're still under God, but he, he, they, they were expelled from that land. So what do we see here now? And then God says, now I'm going to make a new promised land where I will rule over my people. And those people shall call me by my name. But then what happens? You and I know the story. By the time we get to Samuel, then the kings, even the judges, the people fail to obey, do they not? And what happens? They're once again expelled from the land. And they wind up going it. Then God says, what? I will bring you back into the land. And that's where we find ourselves in Luke. Israel is back in the land. They're not, they're not ruling over the land, but God says, here's the land. But guess what else is promised one day? A new earth. Where God will recreate the Garden of Eden. And once again, God will rule over his people. And so that's important us to understand. When we talk about land, we just think of a land as land. But the land is important through the story of the Bible because God says, I am going to give you a land where I will rule over you. Now, now before you just kind of fade off, your, your eyes start to glaze over on what I'm sharing with you, is God is promising you a place of rest. That's what we find that in the book of Revelation where he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And the city of Jerusalem comes down, and you and I will reign on that new earth. When we think of heaven, you've heard me say this before. We think of, we think of in the clouds with, with, with harps and singing. I don't want that type of heaven. That seems kind of odd to me. But the heaven that he's speaking of is an earthly kingdom. Kingdom. When you and I think of eternity, don't think of being up in the clouds and somewhere floating around, but think of it on terraforma. It's new terraforma, as I said uh, earlier in Sunday school. It's on earth. We will be doing many of the same things that you and I are doing now, but without the presence of sin. Amen? I mean, we will till the ground, and there will be uh, produce you can pick a thorn, there, or pick a thorn, you can pick a rose and there'll be no thorns. The animals, the lion and the lamb will be able to lie down together. There'll be no, no rancor or anger or malice. See, so when you and I are looking for land, when we think about land, that's a place of rest. That is what God is promising Israel. He heard them, he saw their suffering in Exodus and says, I will give you a place of rest. Today, he's promising you and I a day of rest, a place of rest, a time of rest. Trim Turner, in his study of the book of Joshua, and it identifies three things that Joshua teaches us. This is important for us to know. It's here on the monitor. That God will get the victory while Israel get the deliverance. Now, as you see, as we go through these, you're going to see this is the same thing when it comes to Salvation. There's an analogy playing out here in the story. He's given us now illustrations through Joshua what he's going to do spiritually for you and I. God gets the victory while Israel gets deliverance from their enemies and possessions of the land. He writes that Joshua tells a story of an obscure landless people who invade a land with fortified cities, trained armies, and powerful kings, but yet they still win. Sometimes it seems in our Christian life that everything is against us. The thing is so difficult, the suffering is so hard. How can we ever defeat it? But God himself will give us that place of rest. Number two, Trent Hunter goes on to write that Joshua will teach us about the justice of God against sin and the great mercy of God towards sinners. So let me give you a sneak preview. When you and I read of the stories of the, of the uh, total uh, uh, condemnation of the land of Canaan and those inhabitants, what you're seeing is God's uh, wrath against sin, his justice. But also you're seeing great mercy of God towards those that sin. So we see both that tension happening on. But then thirdly, the book of Joshua, most importantly, is a story of salvation within the Bible's higher story of salvation through Christ. Interesting, Jesus himself even makes a personal appearance in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Pastor Hunter goes on to note that the land is a gift from God that's promised to his people where they will experience rest. God's covenant with Abraham and Moses provides the context for the story of Israel inherited in land. It helps us understand what they're to do, what's expected from them. Obedience is required for entrance into the blessings of the land, even as disobedience will lead to cursing and failure to take that land. The Lord judges the Canaanite inhabitants in the land by means of his people. And the Lord fights for his people as that divine warrior to judge and drive out the inhabitants of the land. But also as we come through here, number six, the land is never fully obtained as we finish Joshua. Evidencing a tension in the storyline, leading us to Christ by showing our need for a new covenant with fully obedience covenant mediator. What we're going to see at the end, that there was not enough. The the law of Moses was not enough for the people to obey. It could not do what it required. And so they did not live in the land free and did not experience the rest of God. Now, one pastor, Clint Barnes, writing for Nine Marks, gives us three reasons why Joshua is profitable. Scripture tells us that all scripture is profitable, right? For doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that you and I could be complete and equipped. And so when I go through these Old Testament books, (coughs) excuse me, I ask, well, how in the world is Joshua profitable for that? How does it teach me how to love God more and to love my neighbors? How does it make me a better husband or a better better parent? How does it make me a a better employee? How does it make me serve God more? Well, I think there's three ways you'll see of it today. First, Joshua betrays God's faithfulness. You and I need to come to understand, and I pray that you have so far today, that you see that God is faithful towards his promises. That's what faith is it's a confident trust in the promises of God, that God will do as he says. Now, you and I, we cannot judge God by others. We have had parents, we have had spouses. We have had children, we have had employers make us promises, right? Every day, our phone, our, 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 our TV, whatever, we're getting these commercials, promises of this product, whatnot, it will it'll do for you. And those promises always seem to fail or not measure up to expectations. But let me share with you, God will meet your expectations and so much more. Number two, thank you. Joshua beckons God's people to remember God's faithfulness. You and I are called to remember how God is faithful. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Isaac and then Jacob, to Joseph. Even during those 400 years of suffering, he was faithful to the children of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number three, Joshua exhorts, encourages God's people to unity to be of one mind, to meditate on God's word in the same way. That's why I encourage you to, to come together and to read God's word. For us, we are a Bible church, and so the word of God is important. He calls us to unity, but our unity is not based on just whether or not we all vote for the same guy for president or that we have the same uh, political or culture or social mind. It's not the fact that we all like the same baseball or basketball or sports team. It's not based on the fact that we all like certain things to eat. No, our unity is based on what God's Word says, and that's why we encourage you. And men, let me give you just again a quick commercial. That's why I'm encouraging you to join us at Panera on this, starting on Wednesdays, starting over right over here. From 7 to 8, 15, we're going to be studying God's Word together to encourage us to be men of faith to be ready to live in a world that is very hostile to our faith. And make no mistake, you are living in a world that is hostile to your faith. They want your daughters. The world wants your marriage. Satan wants to destroy you at the very core of who you are. At the very least, he wants to paralyze you into inaction. But you and I must remember that God is faithful. We need to remember God is faithful. And we need to recognize the unity is found in the word of God and the fact that we are children of God based on what Jesus has called us to do. The book of Joshua ends with a call to obedience. He says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. The same command comes to you and I today. We're to put away the gods that you and I serve. Those supreme objects of admiration that you and I admire, that we love, that we need for our satisfaction. We're going to talk a little bit about that as we go through about the word tribute and what that means. So the key here as we go through Joshua is to understand that the promised land is a land of rest. It is a place of rest. In Joshua 1.13, I don't know if you're still there in chapter 1. In verse 13, he says, Remember the word of Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanding you, saying the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest. You may want to underline that. So that's so important to understand. We think of it as a place of conquest, military campaigns, but it is going to be a place of rest, and I will give you this land. Same way, you need to recognize that God has given us a place of rest that he will give us. Dr. Vernon McGee notes in his commentary on the book of Joshua that the Christian today is given title to spiritual blessings as well. And Ephesians says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. In Romans, it says, in all these things, speaking of life, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Galatians, he says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So you and I are like the Hebrew children. We have given spiritual blessings just as the children of Abraham were giving blessings. Ours, in this case, are now spiritual. We do not see them as of yet, but it's that of a new heart, one that is able to do what the law could not do. And Christ, like them, is our divine warrior. He is the one who has defeated that curse of sin and death, and he has conquered Satan and all of the demonic hordes and his schemes through his obedience, his crucifixion, and glorious resurrection. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating our hearts, we are now considered friends of God and joint heirs with Christ. These are the blessings that God has given to us today. And through Joshua, we will see the analogy, how that works out. God has promised to walk with us, to pray for us, to fight our battles with us. We too are victors in Christ. Take your Bibles once again and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Here we read like the Israelites that you and I will receive a land, an inheritance, a place of rest. This is a portion of scripture that I'm trying to memorize now for the last six months. It's been a little bit hard and I thought it would be for me as I get older. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, what a wonderful wonderful way to start a passage. According to his grace mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, an unfailing, kept in heaven for you. See, God has given us a place of rest. He says, who by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our day of rest has not come yet. It is coming. He says in verse six, in this fact, you rejoice though for now a little while, if necessary, you have been greed by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. In our spiritual journey of becoming more like Christ, being freer from sin, Once we've accepted Christ, it seems like we like life to get easier, but in actuality, it gets harder, doesn't it? To deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to follow him is difficult work. It is tough work. There is no rest from fighting sin. Even in the world of our dreams, have we not woken up and said, I can't believe I just dreamt that. That's not something I would do or say. But yet it's our mind outworking its own sin. Again, you use, hear this phrase, we look at the mirror and we can't make eye contact with ourselves because we know ourselves and know the sin that resides within us. And like Paul, we say, who can save me? I'm just a wretched man. The Bible says a day of rest is coming. Until that day of rest, there will be troubles. That's why he says, come to me, All ye who are heavy and weary laden, and I will give you rest. See, he will give us the victory. Like the Hebrew children, Dr. McGee writes that the Christians' practical possession and experience depends upon conflict and conquest. Like the children of Israel, we must go forward. We have to cross the spiritual Jordan, our salvation, right? And we now are going to fight sin. He says you have to fight to the point of shedding blood. In Hebrews 11, we look at those who continued to fight and never saw a day of rest until the day of their death. Galatians 5 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's a battle each and every day. In Ephesians chapter 6, he gives us that war image, right? That battle image. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That almost seems taken right out of Joshua. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'll tell people, listen, if you're fighting with your spouse, it's not really your spouse that you're fighting with. You're fighting against the spiritual forces of evil that are trying to destroy your relationship, and we must understand it, that we must be united to fight that battle together against those who would destroy us. Dr. McGee continues, these things are never attained through the energy of the flesh. And we know that, right? We can set up all sorts of boundaries and all sorts of things that we say, well, I will not cross this line. And then we'll say, well, we'll we'll draw another line so we don't cross it. We try to build up all these religious works and things to, to keep ourselves in check. It's nothing but behavior modification, not a heart change. But he says we cannot change and get our rest through our own energy, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit that works in the yielded life of the believer. He calls us to yield. So the writer of Hebrew warns us, let us therefore strive. Now we just talked about, aren't we not, We're supposed to strive? Wasn't that the disciples' problem? They were striving for status? Where Hebrews 4.11 tells us, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It is our aim to please God. That's what you and I should strive for. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as the children of Israel. If you go fighting your battles through your flesh or through your own power, intellect, and self-discipline, you will fail. You will fall. We need Christ on our side. I'm going to ask you one last turn of the scripture, if you would, Hebrews chapter 3. So I'm going to tell you, you will fall. If God would have sent just one family into Israel or just sent a few of his strong warriors into the land of Canaan, they would have fell. Because if only a God is with them, can they be strengthened. And here's the important thing that I want to talk about to you real quickly, is we are called to strive to enter that rest, but it is not an individual striving. It is a community effort. It's the community of God. We are come together to cross Jordan and to fight together. That's also a key as we look through uh, the book of Joshua. When a tribe was able to get their land, they were not to stop fighting. They were then to join their brothers and help them drive out the inhabitants. And so you and I are called as a church to work together to help each other grow in our faith. Hebrews chapter 3 We are warned in verse 7. Look what he says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of testing the wilderness. That's when they fell in the book of Numbers. They hardened their heart against the word of God. He says, do not do it. In verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. He says in verse 10, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said that they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Paul now uses that analogy and say, Take care, brothers, lest there be in in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I pray today to those that are listening to my voice here or whether on the live stream or later on our website, that there's none of you that have an evil, unbelieving heart that's leading you away. But there could be, even with this small community of of believers, there could be those of you who do not yet follow Christ. You have not yet uh, chosen him. You have not yet repented of your sin. If so, or if you have, he says that you need to be encouraged. Because look at verse 13. He says, take care, brothers, in 12, that not any of you would fall. But he says in verse 13, but exhort one another, encourage one another, lift one another up. How often? Every day. Not just on Sundays, not just on a Wednesday night, but every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You and I need to recognize that we are called together as a small community to covenant love together, just as Joshua and the children of Israel to do is to cross that land and to walk together that we may pray for one another, encourage one another, love one another, serve one another, honor one another, all the one another's of the Bible. We're to do life together, that old phrase, but so important. Let me tell you, you are not left in the battlefield alone. And let it not be said that we saw a wounded Christian and shot him out of the mercy, but that we lift him and we bind their wounds and we lift them up and lead them back towards Christ. We are to be involved in each other's life. If we see someone doing something that is harmful to them, that could lead them to not inherit the kingdom of God, we are to warn them. We are to strongly warn them. Take them by the shoulders and shake them, warn them. And say, my friend, you are in danger of hell fire. And we're to love them. The Bible tells us to supply what is lacking in their faith. And so I ask, is there any way that you are not trusting in the promises of God? If so, please share with us so that we may encourage you and lift you up. You are not in this road together. When we dedicate children, when we do baptisms, when we have church membership, when we do those things, we are coming together and say, as a body of believers, we are going to do this with you. Which means we'll love and encourage you. But at times we may say it's time for discipline. Why? Because we love, not because we hate or judge. You and I need one another. A day of rest, a place of rest, it's coming. Revelation 21, and I saw a new new kingdom, a new heaven, a new city coming down. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I will wipe away every tear from their eye. There'll be no more sorrow, no more death. We're looking forward to that, aren't we? I am. Come quickly, Lord. That's a tough phrase to say. And I'm afraid there's times that I say it, but I really don't mean it. I know that. I'm always looking for today and for tomorrow. I wanna see my grandchildren grow up. I wanna see more grandchildren. I wanna see them uh, 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 get married. May Lord come quickly so that they too may experience their peace and the rest of God. Until that day of rest, you and I are called to the long journal of battle. Let us commit to the works or to the words, excuse me, of the apostle Paul that's found in 2nd Titus. He says for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. You want to know how you do battle? This is the battle that you are to do and you are to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the lives of this present world waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem from us all lawlessness and pure for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In that day, you and I we'll have rest. Until then, let's be about the business that God has called us to. With every head bowed every, every bow and every eye closed, I'm going to ask the worship team and Randy to come up as he comes to pastor's prayer. I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider the, the, the words of Joshua. I know, again, it's a different type of message, but there's, there's words of wisdom for us, words of application. Would you take a moment and consider, are you ready for that day of rest? Have you put on that armor? Are you ready to trust in the faithfulness of God? If not, would you come and let us know? We want to share with you how you know, how you can know that you have eternal life? Would you pray and ask the Holy Spirit to move in your hearts and respond to Him in a wonderful way? We ask Randy, go ahead and come on up for a pastor's prayer.